All right, hey, good morning, New Life Church. Aren't you glad for sunshine again? I tell you, it comes and goes. It seems like that every 24 hours it happens. So how about that? Well, listen, we're going to get right into today's word. We're starting a new series today called Evaluate, Evaluate. And we're going to be looking at a few of our core values as a church and how they relate to us and uh, how God speaks to us through those and how he wants to use our life with those things. To help kick this particular series off, I've invited one of our teaching and discipleship elders, uh, Max Garner. He's going to come, and he's going to start this series off today. So let's give it up for our, one of our elders, Max Garner. All right. Thank you. That was that was my five dollars worth right there. <laughs> uh, I didn't wear a watch to. Oh, there's a clock back there, isn't it? Well, later with that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, it might have been there the whole time. Every time I preach, I just wore my glasses today. It's brand new. Okay. Um, before I get started um, in the actual message, um, how many of you have heard that song, Fear is a Liar? Okay. Now, I'm going to read the first verse of that song, and when I get to the chorus, I want all these girls right here on the front row to sing the first line, fear is a liar, preferably in tune and loud. Okay? When he told you you're not good enough, when he told you you're not right, when he told you you're not strong enough to put up a good fight, when he told you you're not worthy, when he told you you're not loved, when he told you you're not beautiful, that you'll never be enough. Fear is a liar. Come on now, girls. Everybody in the says this. Fear is a liar. I have, I have sang that particular line so many times this past week that I should be up for a Dove Award. Not for song, not for the greatest lyrics, but the greatest four or five words ever. Fear is a liar. I'll be walking through work from the office to the restroom or to, from the office to the a room where we have our lunch, our kitchen, and I'll just be walking along and I'll just go, Fear is a liar. Out loud. What are they going to do? Fire me? I ain't scared. Why? Because fear is a liar. Little old lady come up and made her payment the other day. I've been taking money from her for almost 10 years. Coming in making payments. Then she pays it all. She buys more furniture. Then she comes in every month. And I've gotten to know her over the years. She came in not long ago and and uh, we've preached at each other a few times. We've had a couple of shouting matches. And she said, my, uh, one of my grandkids are in bad shape. And when she said that, I just stood up in my chair and I said, Fear is a liar. 
you can automatically tell what kind of church some people go to. She just said, Woo, Jesus, yes. Mm, mm. She's getting halfway down the aisle going out for paying her bills. She just stopped, Woo, Jesus, Jesus. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm a little on the shy side, so I try not to make too much noise. And I just stood up and I said, Fear is a liar. You know, that is such a powerful truth. Now, that one phrase is going to be very important for us. And that's the reason I wanted to bring it up. But that one verse is going to be very important for us in our message this morning because um, when we talk about our values, our core values of our church, we have to realize that one of the most important, all of them are important, but one of the most important uh, is the Great Commission. Because if we do not fulfill the Great Commission, we won't need all the other commissions. We won't need kids' church. Miss Haley wouldn't have nothing to do. You wouldn't have anything to do. We have to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, I was raised in church. <coughs> I have probably slept in church more than some of you have been to church. You know, uh, I was raised in church and I've been to every kind of service. I've heard every kind of preacher there is. Some good, some not so good. Some should just quit and go get another job. Um, that's what I did. I've seen it all. I've been to church my whole life. And I've heard sermons to some degree on winning souls, the Great Commission. I've, I pastor, I've been preaching since 1979. I've pastored a few churches. And when Pastor Jeremy asked me to, to minister this message, and he said, and your subject title is The Great Commission. And all of a sudden I went, I've been preaching since 79. I've pastored here. There's youth pastor there. I've pastored here. Uh, acted like a pastor here. Uh, I don't think I've ever really preached a sermon just on the Great Commission. That is crazy. I should be slapped. Not today. And so... Knowing that, I just, I just began to nod up. What, I mean, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? I've never done this before. I've been preaching all these years and never preached on the Great Commission. But I've had the most wonderful battle, the most wonderful warfare for the past few weeks that has convinced me that the most important things in our lives and the most revelatory things that God wants to reveal to us, fear will attack you quickly. Quickly. Because he knows it does not want you to go any further. So if he can get you before you go on the field, 
He's got you. But once you take that first step on the field, all the jitters go away. And so I'm going to share with you this morning uh, just a few things that, that I have learned in my study over the past few weeks on the Great Commission. Uh, they're going to put it on the reference, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We're going to read it here. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I would like to read this verse, these verses also in the Passion Translation. It's uh, very exciting and interesting. If you don't have that translation, you need to go get you one. It's really good. Someone asked me the other day, says, uh, well, I don't, I don't like that translation. I, I, I go by the King James only. Or uh, I do the NLT or, or whatever. You know, nobody ever fusses about that unless they're preachers. Preachers always fusses about that. And I realized something. I told my wife, I said, I realized something. A preacher get up and he'll read a verse of scripture and he'll say, this is God's translation and it's the only translation. Anybody ever heard that? Then he'll read a verse from God's translation. Then he'll preach an hour explaining God's translation, giving you his translation of God's translation. And I finally realized, just read the word and let God speak to you. Amen? It's all good. Because no matter what this book says until it gets in your heart and plays out in real life, it's not worth much. you got to walk it out. You can read all day, but you got to walk it out. Now, the beautiful thing about walking out the word of God is he has given us the opportunity and he's, he's put into the equation failures. How many of you know that? He even says you can fall seven times. What did he tell you to do? Get back up. I'm like, okay. I, I like, Lord, is that um, per week? Per day? <coughs> what about per hour? I finally got it down to, I've been, I, he's, I've interpreted my translation uh, about every seven minutes. That's failing one time a minute for seven minutes. Then I spend the next seven minutes getting up. You know, and I've had days like that, and we all have. But here's what it says in this translation. I wrote all this down because, like I said, I never preached this message before. So, Then Jesus came close to them and said, All the authority of the universe has been given to me. Now go in my authority and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to faithfully follow all that I have commanded you. And never forget that I am with you every day, even to the completion of this age. (coughs) Now, we are... 
sometimes afraid of the Great Commission because we're afraid that God's going to send us to a foreign nation. He's going to make us get up and move. Uh, but to be honest with you, the majority of people, he wants you to fulfill the Great Commission right where you are. See, because if it doesn't work at home, it's not going to work over there. You know what I mean? <coughs> so you have to live it out where you are today. I want to I bring one interesting thing, though. When Jesus gave these disciples this message, this command, this commission, he had, been, he had just raised from the dead. He was getting ready to ascend on high when he was getting ready to tell them to go to Jerusalem and, and stay there until they are filled with power from on high. Even to the last minute, some of the disciples were still questioning what was going on. I'm like, so here, Jesus, raised from the dead, you know, God made manifest, come through the virgin birth, lived a life, sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, shed his blood, went down to hell, whooped the devil, took the keys of death, hell in the grave, come back up out of the grave, come out, spoke to a woman first because he wanted to make sure the story got started correctly. <laughs> then he showed himself to the disciples who were scared to death, which I fit right in there sometimes. I, I know why the, the 12 disciples were men because, you know, we, we, need to, we need to get away from that Americanized manhood thing and realize that the fear of God can really live in our lives and we can actually do something for him if we'll understand the importance of fear and quit being Americanized uh, know-it-alls. But uh, anyway, that wasn't in my notes, but it, it, was, it was from God. And so he comes and he shows the disciples and tells them what to do. And he says, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And all they have known is just that little area walking around with him for three and a half years. Now, to become a disciple, let, let's just get into it. I better follow my notes because I don't want to go back into the old time way of just saying a lot of stuff and not saying anything. How many of you ever heard of Brother Lawrence? He wrote the book, Practicing the Presence of God. There was a phrase in his book that's very interesting and goes right along with this. It says, Brother Lawrence said, the air of this world, is contagious. The air of this world is contagious. You ever experienced that? You ever walked into a room of people or went to a convention, uh, a business convention, or went on vacation and went into an area? The air in the room was contagious and not the good kind. It was contagious. Now just a thought on discipleship can be just a thought of being a disciple maker or making disciples can be very daunting. Though it may be a divine command right here in this scripture, it will take what my friend Les Barnhart, I went to college with him, we've been friends for over 30 years. This past week in one of my moments during one of the days where I was feeling like uh, Pastor Jeremy's just going to have to preach this message on his own. I called my friend Les up on the phone, and, and we only talk about every six months, and we pick up where we left off. And uh, we get along so good because uh, I told him, I said, we get along so good because you agree with everything I say. And then he told me one time, he said, we get along so good because 
Max, you agree with everything I say. And we finally just decided that we're both right. All the time. So that's why we call each other. You know, you got to have a friend like that. How many of you know that? You got friends that'll tell you when you're wrong, okay? You know, they're called wives. <laughs> and I'm not going to say the other way. But you got to have a friend that you just talk to. So I, I called him up on the phone, and he's in California. He does <coughs> catastrophe insurance claims. He's out there with the big flooding going on. He asked, Max, how you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. I'm, uh, i got to preach a message on the Great Commission this coming Sunday, and I've never preached one on the Great Commission. He said, well, that's going to be interesting. I said, Les, I need to ask you a question about discipleship. Just tell me one thing. I said, I just, I said I'm going to try to come up with at least three points, but I need at least one right now to get started. So give me one point on discipleship. He said, well, Max, it's interesting that you called and asked. He said, I'm in the process of discipling this guy right now. And he said, if you want one word for discipleship, I have to tell you, it's dirty. I said, excuse me? He said, it's dirty. It's a dirty job. And by he, what he meant by this was that when we connect with people who need Jesus or followers of Jesus that need help and grow, there is a hands-on of Christ's command that puts us in direct contact to the, to the contagious air of this world. You can't get rid of it. And there is not a way to clean people up before you have to touch them. There's not a way to get them thinking correctly before you have to listen to them. Well, I, I don't want to have to listen to any of that stuff. Why? You used to be the same way. And somebody listened to you. Jesus spent three and a half years discipling 12 men. These men were then commissioned to go into all the world and make, what were they going to make? They were going to make what they themselves had been made by him. See, we don't want to confuse or scare anyone by saying, you need to go out and make disciples. You say, well, I haven't been a Christian but three years. I don't know that much. That's not a problem. You need to make disciples and just help make them what you've been made by Christ up to that point. Then God will send somebody, and in the process of you doing that, you will grow and you'll continue to disciple. That's why sometimes people who just give their heart to the Lord, <coughs> they'll go out and they'll just win a bunch of their friends to Jesus. They'll bring them to church. And most churches, they don't know what to do with it because they don't know what true discipleship is. I can look around this building right now, and I've been part of this church for 25 years, and I can see the people that have been discipled, and sometimes you're being discipled and you don't even know you're being discipled. But it's life together, a continual life together 
is the way of discipleship. Tim Keller, he's an author, scholar, retired pastor, speaking about the Great Commission, said he has three key things when he wants to talk about reaching secular people. I want to share them with you very quickly because they're extremely interesting. Number one, put a priority on personal relationships. People are less and less inclined to check out your church gatherings, regardless of how well you lead them. But they are open to conversations in the midst of genuine personal relationships. See, just to walk up to someone and say, uh, I need you, and you don't even know, I need you to come to church with me. Probably not going to happen. But if you build relationships with people, relationships with people that do not know Jesus Christ, and ask God to lay them on your heart when you bump into everybody. You can't disciple everybody you bump into because then you get depressed, defeated, and you don't do anything. Ask God to put you in contact with one person. It doesn't matter. Just one person. And then just begin to build a relationship. And you don't have to start talking about Jesus from the very beginning. Number two, remember, he said, Tim Keller said, remember the echoes of God. And I love this when I read it, and I, I knew I just had to share this with you. Remember the echoes of God. And he is referencing N.T. Wright and C.S. Lewis's work when he come up with these echoes. He echo number one, the passion for justice echo. Anybody hearing that? We need justice, 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 justice. It is echoing across our land. We care about it, yet for truly secular people, there is no ultimate foundation for justice. They can't quite put their hands on it. Everybody's got a different idea of what justice is. Now, when everybody has a different idea of what justice is, it means that the, their definition of justice is not correct. Okay? Well, we have to realize that justice comes down to God, and God is a loving, forgiving, pick-you-up-from-the-gutter kind of God. But that's the echo of justice that's in our world today. The second one is the longing for joy echo. How many of you like to have the joy echo? I mean, just joy. C.S. Lewis who most eloquently pointed out that our cravings for ultimate and lasting joy in this world points to another world. Thus the books he wrote, and the movies that were created from that. They give you joy when you watch them. Because he knows that the human soul was created to long for something more, something beautiful, something happy, Something exciting. It's the joy echo. And you see people <clears throat> in your daily walk, in your daily work, in your daily conversations. People are searching for some joy in their lives. It's an echo that God has released. And he wants us to help bring meaning to that as we build personal relationships with them. Instead of pointing a finger in their face and preaching, saying, you need to get your heart right with God. No, the person who does that 
needs to get their heart right with God because God is love, not judging you. He is caring. He is comforting. He is calm. He is patient. You know, anger, I wasn't going to tell you this, but I, I might as well. What the hey. This past week was probably the roughest week I've had in a long time. I got in an argument with a coworker out loud, screaming at work. No, you're wrong. I know what I'm doing, and if you don't like it, you do it. But you can't do it because you've been here 11 years, and you don't know how to do it. Ha, I'm the one doing it. Don't you speak to me that kind of way. I can do anything I want to do. Well, then they just do it. And about that time, the manager come walking in the door. You know, managers, they're like walking, living forms of like Jesus walking into your situation. And he walks in and he goes, what's going on? So what do I do? Calm down, get my composure? No. I said, I'll tell you what's going on. And I got, you know. So the person I'm arguing with, and see, this hasn't happened in, you know, a couple weeks. No. This hasn't happened in three and a half, four years. And I'm, I'm preparing for this message on reaching people with the love of Jesus. And I'm just, I'm just expressing something other than the love of Jesus. And so my boss, I look at him and he just looks at me and he just goes, that's going to be rough, ain't it, Max? Yeah, I got to go apologize, I guess. Guess I have to go tell her I'm sorry. He said, well, just give it a few minutes. Think about what you're going to say. So I did apologize. Went up there, cried, gave her a big hug, told her I was sorry, told her I was wrong. And, and I was. And then I sat back and I just like, oh, man. Being a discipler is loving people where they are. What a great witness I just was. You know? So we all experience setbacks. The echo to be known and loved. We all crave relationships where we are known and loved. This echo points directly to our core Christian values. The emptiness echo. Though many dismiss it, we all have the fear of death and loss. Of, and loss of meaning in our lives, but the gospel uniquely addresses these questions. Three, we must train everyday Christians in countercultural beliefs. We must train Christians in countercultural beliefs. In other words, we don't need to go into the world blind and dumb when it comes to what other people believe. 
Because you have to have a common ground to connect with them. Gone are the days of just walking up to somebody and just saying, Jesus loves you and cast the devil out of them and everything's going to be all right. I was raised that way and went to college that way. We went down to the catacombs every Friday night in San Antonio and tried to pass out tracts and tried to cast as many devils out of people as we could. We've been in the catacombs and we've laid hands on people and demons manifest themselves and one boy, small kid, no bigger than my grandson Jack, picking up throwing grown men across the room because of the evil it was in. I sort of backed out and went outside and started passing out tracts. I felt like I had a tract ministry at that time. Not a get beat up by a demon ministry. So we know things like, you know, and those are aggrandizements of, of people's experience, and we know that those things are real. Jesus, if Jesus did it, we can do it. I'm not putting that down. I am talking about the true principles of discipleship. And discipleship comes down to you building a personal relationship with someone who doesn't know Jesus or even someone who does that needs to grow in Christ. Because not all believers are true disciples. It doesn't mean that they are not going to heaven. It just means that they are missing out on a lot of stuff right here on earth to be discipled to live and walk in the power as Christ has provided for them. It's a, it's, and it's a slow process. I'm 60 years old, you know, and it's a slow process. This is a, the individual quest for autonomous expression and fulfillment is the driving value of our Western culture. Let me say that again. The individual quest for autonomous expression and fulfillment is the driving value of our Western culture. This is a pagan impulse that denies the created order. It is a pagan impulse that denies the created order. Why? Because we are made to know God first and foremost and find our meaning in reference to Him. But our world, our society, our nation is not living by the format of living their life being referenced to God, but to themselves in the fulfillment of their own personal desires. Individuals are not made to be the center They focus on self as the foundation of their meaning. But as Brother Lawrence said, we deal with the contagious air of this world. So I'm going to skip over a few pages here. And uh, just come up to me after church, slip me $10 and I'll make you a copy of this. Nine principles of discipleship, and I'm not going to preach on all nine. I'm just going to bring attention quickly to two of them. But I do want to give, tell you what they are. These are the principles of discipleship that we must learn to live by in our everyday life. Number one, the incarnation. 
This is Jesus came into our world to show us God's love. It's one of the most foundational things when it comes to discipleship. To understand and have a clear meaning yourself of the incarnation. Because if you don't understand the incarnation, what are you going to tell them about? They don't want to hear about your troubles and your trials until you build relationship with them. Number two, selection. And Jesus did all this. Select people were Jesus' method. I mean, have you ever wondered that God created the heavens and the earth, the birds, the fish, all the animals? He took a pile of mud and made man. He breathed into us and we're walking around now. He made woman from the side, a rib from the side of a man. He did all these great and miraculous things, and then he says, Oh, I'm just going to let them tell the world about me. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Have you ever thought to yourself, God, what are you doing? I know those people I go to church with. It's not going to happen. I mean, look at me on Monday mornings. And you want me to disciple people? Yeah. He wants you. He wants me. When I went to that lady at work an hour and a half later, because it took me an hour and a half later to calm down and finally decide that I was going to do what God wanted me to do, what I needed to do, I went to her desk and I knelt down with tears in my eyes and laid my head next to her shoulder and said, please forgive me. That was hard. I don't want to do things like that except to my wife, much less another woman that I just screamed at and told her she was crazy. Association. Jesus stayed with them. And this is how discipleship is going to work in our church. Association. You have to stay with the people. You have to stay on them. <clears throat> Consecration. Jesus required obedience. Demonstration, Jesus showed them how to live. They're going to be watching you. If you're not living right, they're not going to live right. But if you have a bad day, like I did, then do what's right. See, there are not people in the world are not looking for perfect, perfect people to follow. People in the world are looking for honest, humble people to follow. They need to be, see, an example of someone who has a messed up life that is now being fixed by a relationship with the incarnated Christ. And it's not, we are not the center. Whether, no matter what nation, America or what any nation you live in, you are not the center. Christ is the center. He is the power. He is the glory. His kingdom is going to be in and through us, the church, and no other way will it be expressed. It will be expressed through disciples of Christ, making disciples for Christ so that more disciples can be made to be a part of Christ. Whether it is in a local church or whether it finds one person in your life that you meet at Starbucks every week or you meet some cafe or you just meet on the street corner every week and sit there on a the bench, and it may take a year, but you disciple that person. Supervision. Jesus continued to check on them. I was raised that you go out, pass out trash, give somebody to say the 
Roman road and the sinner's prayer, once that happens, man, we got it made. Get that person to church, get them wet, get them a seat, get them a Bible, and it's done. It's over with. Anybody raised that way? Doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I got saved at every revival. My dad was a preacher, Pentecostal preacher, Pentecostal holiness preacher. We even talked in tongues, rolled around the floor, run around the church, shouted, hollered, did all that stuff. There's nothing wrong with doing that stuff, but it doesn't get you anywhere. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but all that does not get you anywhere if you don't love people and you don't walk straight and spit white, as they used to say. You know, I was raised in the kind of stuff that if you didn't have this happen in every church service, God wasn't there. And let me just step out on a limb here, since it might be another six months before I preach. I'll, step to, I'll stay on this red line. Our church will grow. Our church will expand. Our church will break off and sin and start other assemblies and churches as the vision that God gave our pastor. But it will be done as us as individuals build disciples on a daily basis and raise them to be mature Christians. It will not be done. It will not be done by the shouting and the hollering and the running the aisles. And you can be mad at me if you want to, but you will come to me and have to apologize for being mad just like I did that woman. (laughs) And see, I've tried all that other stuff. And we have to realize that we're in a battle against sin. Sin in people's life. The devil is out to steal, kill, and destroy. Supervision, Jesus continued to check on them. Reproduction, Jesus expected them to reproduce. Impartation, Jesus gave himself away. (coughs) And I'm not even going to be able to finish all this, but I will get to my closing page. It was page 13, I think. I'll close with this. On July the 8th, 1741. July the 8th, 1741. That's what, 260 some years ago? Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan revivalist, preached his famous sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. If you have never read that message, that sermon, you should read it. It is absolutely phenomenal reading on what not to preach. In that sermon he said, The God that holds you you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect, 
over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Man. I wrote, I wrote, I actually wrote this down. Man, doesn't that just give you love bumps for Jesus? Just make, whoo, Jesus, I love you. Now, you read his history, you'll know that thousands of people got saved. That's where they were at the time. But you also study his life and read the rest of his life, you'll find out that he changed and he had a lot of issues in his life because this theology got him in trouble. I don't know about you, but I serve a God of love. Tells me he's going to pluck me out of the hands of the devourer. Not hold me over the fire until I whimper and cry and say, Jesus, help me. He's my deliverer. He's my savior. He's the lover of my soul. The incarnation. Jesus came into the world to show us God's love. God became human. Christ assumed our identity. He dwelt among us. He gave his life for us. He defeated sin and death. He rose again. He ascended to heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit to empower us, the impartation. Jesus discipled 12 men for three and a half years. And they changed the world. I want to be discipled. And I personally am praying that God will show me or put me in contact with someone that I can personally disciple. I was talking to my wife about this message very shortly because if I'd have told her everything, she wouldn't have had a reason to come this morning. But she made a statement in our talking and studying that was very interesting. When the Bible says, go into all the world, what and where is your world? My wife told me, she said, your gift or yourself may not take you anywhere but where you are. Because we always think, well, I have a great gift in doing this, or I can do that, or I'm smart in doing this. God's going to send me here and there. No, your gift may not take you anywhere but where you are. And is that good enough for you? Because wherever you are, there's someone who needs to be discipled. And I can look around this congregation today, and I can see many who have already been discipled greatly by the leadership and the people in this church. Your life has changed dramatically over the past couple of years because someone has imparted into you their time, their effort, and the word. But now it's time for us to reproduce and all of us begin to make 
disciples, true followers. The Bible didn't say go into all the world and make converts. It said go make disciples. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for your grace, your power, your concern in our lives. And I ask you, Lord, that as we continue as a church, as a body, as a family, as disciples, as disciplers, as followers of you, that we grow in the admonition of the Lord and in the knowledge of God so that our lives will be able to touch those around us through wisdom and knowledge, love, patience, kindness, peace, in Jesus' name. Amen.